0: For show notes from this episode, visit SustainableAmbition.com slash podcast. Now let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. All right, welcome back, everyone. I am so happy to be here today with Mala Singh. Mala, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Kathy. Thrilled to be here with you. Great.
0: Yes, I'm very excited to be speaking with Mala today. Before we get started, let me introduce you to Mala. So Mala serves as Electronic Arts Chief People Officer, where she focuses on developing talent and cultivating the company culture. In this position, she oversees everything in the HR function, including things like talent acquisition, workplace environment, you name it, it's in Mala's court. And Prior to this position, Mala spent three years as chief people officer at Minted, where she helped to define the culture and grow the creative and technical teams during a high growth period for the startup. Mala began her career in the pharmaceutical industry, serving in HR roles in Asia, Europe, and North America. And I had the pleasure of working with Mala at Minted, so I'm thrilled to speak with her today. Um, So Mala, I'd love to start by having you share a little bit more about your career, uh, your background, perhaps some of the inflection points, and high level, like how did you get to where you are today as Chief People Officer of EA?
1: Absolutely, Kathy. Um, Thanks for having me, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about these, these topics and issues. So I I always start the the story of my career from who I am and where I come from. And so I was born in British Guyana in South America. I'm of Indian origin. My great grandparents immigrated from India to Guyana during a time of indentured servitude with the British uh, colonial empire. And I spent my first eight years growing up in Guyana, and then my family immigrated and settled outside of New York City in the United States. And I start with that story because um, this notion of identity and who I am and and what I lived through in terms of the typical American immigrant experience has shaped a lot about how I thought about my career and my world. And so I went to university at Rutgers in New Jersey for both undergrad and grad school. And then after grad school, I was recruited to Cigna, the insurance company, in their HR development program. I rotated for a couple of years through different assignment. It was a high potential program for underrepresented talent. And that culminated in sort of a director of HR role for Cigna. But after a few years, about four or five years at Cigna, they had divested a lot of their international business. And because my world was bigger than the United States, I had this vision of always wanting a global career. I, from the time I could remember, and certainly before I had means, I've had wanderlust and dreamed about the places that I could travel to and the cultures that I could experience. And so I made a decision after about five years with Cigna to follow a mentor to Bristol Myers Pharma. And the sole reason to make that decision was that BMS was a global company and it would give me incredible opportunities to to work around the world. I spent my first couple of years in the United States and the first international opportunity came up to lead um, Asia Pacific based out of Singapore. I had never traveled to Asia and I said, yes. And you know, when you're in that stage of your life, in your twenties, I had a partner, but not children. life is an adventure. And this is something that I had dreamed of as a little girl. I used to stand on my back porch and look out. I could see at that time, the twin towers of Manhattan in the distance. And I was just to dream and wonder what was beyond them, what was across the ocean and beyond them. And so when it came up an opportunity to say yes to that international assignment, of course I took it. And then boyfriend, now husband and I were scheduled to fly to Singapore on September 12th, 2001 out of New York. It was an incredible time, um, needless to say, we were delayed, but we left on the first flight that opened up to going to Asia about a week later and spent the next three and a half years um, working across that region. I traveled 80% of my time and got deep immersion into very mature cultures and societies like Australia to developing countries like Indonesia, Vietnam, Thailand. And I loved it. And I loved every single minute of it. And at that stage of my life, it was about deriving as much, learning and uh, joy and experiences as possible from this rich, rich opportunity. After about three and a half years in that role, as many large companies do, they rotate and they encourage you to rotate for development. And so I came back to headquarters in New Jersey and had my first child. And what was strange about that experience is repatriation is often harder than expatriation. Meaning when you're out in a new culture, or set of new cultures. This is an incredibly stimulating experience. And I came back to the house I had lived in, to the company, to the same commute, and it just felt claustrophobic. The US had also changed in that time in the post September 11 years, had become a little bit um, insular, and it didn't fit with who I was. And so I made a choice at that juncture. Instead of staying at headquarters and having all that incredible visibility you have with senior executives, I took a lateral move and I moved to Europe. So the promotion track and the easy thing to do would have been stay at HQ, but I wanted to learn Europe. And so I took that opportunity. We moved to France to an opportunity in Paris, had not spoken a word of French prior to getting there, chose to live just outside of Paris in a little village, which required an immersion in French language and culture, learned it very uh, quickly. My, up to this day, my shopping French and my dining French is quite strong (laughs) business French, not so much, but, um, that was another two years of incredible experience. And my oldest child was eight, month, eight months old when we moved to France. We had our second child in France. And after he was born and I was on maternity leave with him, I had a decision to make. All pull with Bristol Myers led back to headquarters in, in New Jersey. And we felt like we had outgrown it. And so we literally opened a world atlas and said, where do we wanna live and raise our children? And we picked three cities in Europe, two cities in Asia, and one city in the United States, which is the San Francisco Bay Area. And the universe works in interesting ways because three weeks after that conversation at home, I get a phone call from Electronic Arts. Uh, At that time, they were about to build out their businesses in Asia, and they needed somebody who knew those markets to build out the people function. Mm -hmm. And so I left Paris oh too soon and moved back to Singapore for 15 months um, and Helped build out EA's people function there. And then it was an opportunity to come to the San Francisco Bay Area, which was the only place in the US we really would consider living. And so the decision to join EA was actually a geographical one. It was it checked two out of six cities that we would consider raising our family in. And that's how I went from pharmaceutical to interactive entertainment. And ultimately was at EA for another. Um, for about five or six years and then we had a, a ceo change the role that i was in as head of hr for all of game development operations was due to some structural changes it was likely to get smaller and one of the things that's always been kind of a principle through my life is never stand still and it felt like it was going to be standing still and so i asked the question was and by the way we had had our third child in california and so i asked the question what do we what do we want to do next what's the next most interesting thing I could do. And so we were in dialogue to return to Europe at that point, but my husband had put down roots in California when I wasn't paying attention. And he said, look, we like it here. Can we just plan to stay in California for a while? And so many of the opportunities in the Bay Area with early phase companies. And I had this question, could I be a startup girl? I'd only ever worked for really large organizations. EA at that time was about 11,000 people. And that was my small company. And so I met the team at Minted, really fell in love with the product, and more importantly, the team and the leadership, and so decided to join Minted at, I think we were about 100 people at that juncture, and um, stayed with Minted for about three years until the um, prior head of human resources at EA uh, decided to depart, and the CEO reached out to me and said, okay, time to come back and do this job as you were always intended to do. And he was quite persuasive. Um, And so I came back to EA now almost four and a half years ago. And what I learned at Minted was what it was like to work with the next generation of workers and compete for talent with every next generation technology company. I also learned a lot about this emerging contract between people and their employer and what it means um, and how the best talent think about their careers and experiences and, and relationships with their work. And so came back to EA in what was going to be one of the most disruptive times of interactive entertainment to help shape the company's culture and move our talent agenda in a completely different direction. So I feel like I'm in my dream job. I work with some incredible, incredible people doing something that is socially relevant. This is the fastest growing entertainment media, about two and a half billion people in the world play games. And it's a joy every day. And it culminates in me being the coolest mom in my son's middle school because I work for EA. So that's the career arc I've been on, Kathy.
0: Yeah, it's so great. Well, one of the things I take away from listening to your story is that you really paid attention to... What would satisfy you in your career, and you know what, um, and align that to your own ambitions. I mean, it really seems very self directed and I'm very aware of like, you know, I'm not going to be happy at headquarters, or you know, it's not just about that next promotion. What actually is going to really satisfy me and make me happy? And so, I wonder when you look back at what how you've managed your own career, what are the lessons? that you would suggest to others in terms of for themselves managing their own career? Because you, you really were, like I talk about with sustainable ambition, the first piece is, the first pillar is right success, really aligning and tuning into how do you define success for yourself? And that's what I I sense that you have Mm -hmm. kind of used that as a core of guiding your own career.
1: For, For sure. You know, people ask, people have asked me, did you is this the goal you set for yourself to become the head of human resources or CHRO for a major company? And the answer, absolutely not. Never did I lay that out as the thing I wanted to do for me. It was always about, uh, an achievement orientation. Like did I always feel like I was growing and achieving and going back to my upbringing, sort of this, this immigrant experience that I had, our parents left, you know, what it was a pretty comfortable living in a third world country. Um, to take risks, leave everything they do behind and come to the United States into you know working class immigrant New Jersey. And it was tough. And they never let us forget that the main reason they did that is because the education system was deteriorating in Guyana. And we had to take advantage of every single opportunity that education in the United States would avail us. And so for me, um, it was never about the destination or the role or the title. It was about Am I achieving? Am I growing? And am I building this set of experiences that at the point at which I'll look back on life and career, I will feel proud of what I've accomplished, proud of the impact I've had on people, proud of the knowledge and understanding I've built around the world. And so I had a I had a vision for my life and career, but not a destination specifically. I had mm-hmm. the attributes of what I wanted. I wanted global cultural experiences. I wanted a family. I wanted a sense of achievement. I wanted a point at which I could begin to give back and have impact on the world outside of just my career. Those were some of the elements of vision. And then there are two things that are guiding principles for me as I've managed the entire thing. The first is when presented with the obvious, choose the different. There were so many points where the obvious route would have been stay in headquarters and ascend the path there. The obvious route would have been, Stay in Europe and continue with that role, because I loved Europe. We love that experience living in France. But it was always about choosing the divergent path. I always wonder, for example, in human resources, we had the opportunity of crossing multiple industries. And I always wonder about people who choose not to do that. I feel incredibly fortunate to have worked in insurance, pharma, interactive entertainment, e-commerce, These different contexts and settings build your capability, builds your adaptability, builds your skill set in connecting dots and finding the right solutions for the context and environment that you're in. And so when presented with the obvious, always, always choose the different. And then the second principle I've lived with is just make one good decision at a time. Mm -hmm. Right? Many people worry about, okay, well, if I do this, what about that? And when, what am I going to do in two years and four years and six years? No, make one good decision at a time, given the context, given the environment. And then the next inflection point, make one good decision there. And so I try not to worry too far down the road about this sort of puzzle that you have to put together that will allow you to ascend to the right destination. It's never been that for me. It's just, okay, here are the choices I'm presented with today. Who am I? What do I aspire to? Who's my husband? And what does he aspire to? And how we put those together into the right decision for us. And that's served me very well, I have to say.
0: I love both of those pieces of advice. And it's so wise because I think people get really overwhelmed, right? By the magnitude of the decision in the moment. And what does this mean for my overall life? So I really appreciate just this one good decision at a time. Yeah. So that's really wise. I wonder too, if you um, both from your own experiences, as you've described, and then obviously being an HR business leader, would you have tips for people on how to think about or manage their careers at different stages in their lives, say in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, and perhaps we have even starting to talk about and beyond. Um, Do you have any thoughts on what people should keep in mind at those different stages?
1: Absolutely. I think in your 20s, your 20s is about building your confidence in who you are and what your capabilities are. And so picking up as many diverse experiences as you possibly can. I think it's very... um, wise to just say yes to a lot of different things in your 20s i don't mean yes to a lot of jobs jump around but i'm talking about experiences right say yes to the interesting project say yes to the thing you think you're not qualified to do say yes to the opportunity to change your context and your setting and push you out of your comfort zone i once had a leader and by the way i've never felt qualified for any of the jobs i took I had a leader at one point in time when he presented an opportunity to me. I still, I'll never forget this. Um, I said, I, I'm not qualified to do that. I think it was when I was going to Asia. it was to run Asia Pacific. I was 31 years old. What did I I'd never traveled to that part of the world. What did I know about running a region and the team? And I, was, I literally said to him, I'm not qualified for that job. He's like, forget qualifications. You're smart. You're capable. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not learning. And so you have to lean into the discomfort. And that is exactly what you should be doing in your 20s, is leaning into discomfort. For many of us in our 30s, and I'll speak to you know women specifically, in our 30s, for those of us who choose to have a family, that's often the time when we're deep in, in building our family. And it is okay to say no to the bigger job during that time. It is okay to recognize that we can't actually do it all. And I have accepted that I couldn't be the best mother on the planet. I'm not gonna be at all the school events. I'm not going to be the mom that bakes cupcakes every single weekend for one event or another. That's not who I can be. And so finding that um, clarity about what kind of parent you want to be. And then this is really important. I say this to, to young people all the time is, choose wisely in your partner. Make sure that your partner and you have the same vision for what you aspire to and what that would mean in terms of your roles. I have lots of friends who are women that are incredibly wonderful and ambitious, who also have partnered with men who are incredibly wonderful and and ambitious. And unfortunately, um, at times, the traditional role still falls to the woman. And so they're burnt out and exhausted and feeling like they're, they're not getting the right satisfaction out of either dimension of their lives, either career or parenting. And so for me, um, it was important if I knew I wanted a life that meant, you know, lots of variability, lots of opportunity to live around the world for me to pursue the goals I had and the vision I had for what career could look like. I needed a partner who would be happy to support that and work with that. And so I chose someone who's happy to be the at-home parent. And so it's been fun to raise kids in those, in this sort of a reversed role, uh, expectation where their dad is the at home primary parent, and I'm the, you know, wealth building, income building parent. And it's great. It's a great role model for my sons to have. It's a great role model for my daughter to have. Um, so that, so in your thirties, managing your career, managing your ambition is really about understanding that, um, by the way, there is no, I, I don't believe in the term work life balance because that kind of implies that there's a 50 50 balance everybody should be striving for. I work a lot. I have a big job and a lot of people that I feel a sense of responsibility to. But I also have work life balance because it is the balance that I've chosen for myself. And it's the balance I've structured my life around. And it works for me. I get a lot of personal joy, satisfaction, and just reinforcement from what I do from a work perspective. And the type of mom I am is the type of mom who is there for the really important moments, the type of mom who can have really great conversations with my kids about really big topics that are happening in the world, Um, the type of mom who can talk about my career and my job and what that means and the decisions I make. And one of the sort of gifts of this pandemic is the kids also get to see what I do every day, my, my daughter, I overheard her once talking to a friend about what her mom does. And she, and she said, oh, she just talks all day. I don't even know why, but she just talks all day. <laughs> <laughs> she actually understands what I talk about. <laughs> um, so that's kind of the 30s. And then in the 40s, for many of us, we're often headed towards that um, culmination of role, the thing that we maybe have aspired to. We're hopefully reaching the potential that we've had. And there, I think a lot of us start thinking about um, these important aspects of leadership. Many of us at this juncture get into big leadership roles. And so that becomes a dimension. And leadership by its very nature has to be something that is selfless. And So I think that this is a, a stage in our lives where we start thinking about our contribution to not what we get from our careers, not what we get from society, but our contribution to our careers, our contribution back to society, whether it's through the work that we do or the work that we do outside of of our jobs. And I, I think in our forties, it's okay to have that balance and, and have impact outside of ourselves come into play and be an important part of how we think about our contributions. Yeah. That's, that's how I see it. Or at least that's, that's how what's guided me through those different eras and stages.
0: No, that's great. And I just want to punctuate a couple of things that you mentioned one, this whole notion of like not feeling qualified. I talked to so many people where they say, and they, they associate it with, um, imposter syndrome. And to me, what I've started to tap into is this notion of what you really talked about, which is... Actually, it's just that you're uncomfortable because you're on a new growth curve. And right. so in, in the fact that you're saying like we need to continue to lean into those uncomfortable moments and that doesn't just happen in your 20s, like it can continue to happen in your 30s and 40s or as you continue to take on an incremental responsibility. So I think we it's just a reminder to me that we all need to get a little more comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. right. Um, and being on these growth curves.
1: Absolutely. And I think. I think even in my career today, I'm in the top job, um, sit in the C-suite of a really noteworthy company. And I am okay to say to my team, I don't know. I don't have the answer. I actually never encountered this. (laughs) And this past year has brought a lot of that because there was no playbook for navigating through a once in a hundred year pandemic. and I think this this sort of humility that I think of when we get to this stage in our career, people expect or we expect of ourselves that we'll have all the answers because we've been at this for 25 or 30 years. We're all still growing and learning every single day. And it's okay to admit that. It's okay to be comfortable with the discomfort of not knowing or not having all of the answers. And this kind of um, humility and vulnerability, I think, really resonates well, especially for those of us who are in leadership roles. So I try to lean into that as much as I can.
0: I love that. And giving people permission to do that. And because I still think people are afraid to be vulnerable and bring them full selves as leaders. So I appreciate you referencing that. And the other thing I just wanted to punctuate really briefly was just the other thing that came up in what you shared was again, the self-defining, like what is, um, for example, what is balance for myself? How do I define things for myself such that I'm happy with how my life is being structured or how I'm managing this work-life integration. So this notion of kind of really tuning into like what you want is what I'm, I'm picking up on. And I think is really important for people to, to consider when they're thinking yeah. about some of these things.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Only you can set that for yourself, right? You can't mm-hmm. let other people define that for you or what it looks like. I mean, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of mommy shaming that goes on, right? Clearly working mothers aren't close to their children. I'm very close to my children, but our closeness is defined by a different set of activities, and maybe would have been defined had I been a an at home mom, for example. and so we all have to choose the life that is right for us, the vision that is right for us, the balance that is right for us, and just architect the life our life around it and so that's that vision and being really, really clear about who you are and what's most important to you is is very important, yeah letting others define it for you the shoulds you should do this you should be that no
0: yes exactly well you've started to bring up this year so i did want to talk to you about this unprecedented time that has been upending work and we were talking earlier you know ea has both offices around the globe Uh, in addition to the Bay Area, but you are definitely a global company and you're also a highly creative company. And so, you know, as being the person responsible for the people in the organization, I could only imagine how much fell on your plate during this time of the pandemic. So I'm curious, what has it been like managing through this time and having responsibility for people? And how have you kind of thought about employee experience and employee engagement and well-being during this time.
1: Yeah, it has been back to the spirit of what we talked about. It's been one of my biggest learning years as a leader, frankly. Um, It's fascinating when you get presented with a situation for which there is no playbook. There are no accepted methods for how to solve for this situation and you have to architect it from the beginning. And so we are, we operate in 25 countries around the world and we have about 50 offices. And the fortunate thing about that is, as the pandemic emerged in Asia, we were able to figure out how to migrate our talent to work from home because EA prior to the pandemic, less than 5% of people work from home in any capacity. I'm talking a day a week as a creative company. We benefit from physical presence. We benefit from people gathered around a monitor to look at a piece of concept art and dialogue about it or standing up against a whiteboard and sketching out the level for the, uh, a game design level for a particular game. All of those things are the dynamic ways in which we work. And we spent the last 15 years creating workspaces that really enable collaboration. were inspirational, um, representative of the kind of art and entertainment that we create. And so I'm just trying to reinforce, we were an at-office type of company, in-office, all-the-time type of company. And so when the pandemic emerged, the first thing we had to do was figure out, how do we even enable people to work from home? And so as it rolled across the world, by virtue of having places that dealt with it early, we could apply those learnings as it rolled to Europe and then to North America. And there was a, a momentous day in March of 2020 where we sent the entire company. We have about, at that time about 14,000 workers, regular workers, contract workers, and sent everybody to work from home. And very quickly we had to figure out how do we actually care for people? And so I work with an incredibly principled um, values-based management team. And the thing that was not controversial in all of this was the care and well-being of our workforce was paramount to everything. And so starting off with that guiding principle made my decision-making a lot easier. Let's do right by our people. And so we started very quickly listening to our workforce. We were always one step ahead of what their most critical needs were, whether it was send them to work from home, providing them stipends to enable them to set up a home office in a way that was comfortable giving them ergonomic training virtually so that they could make sure their home office desk and chair were set up in a way that would prevent them from having injury. Um, And then we started doing things like uh, recognizing the burden on parents for whom we're schooling from home and brought some financial resources and set up um, community forums for parents at all of our sites so they could help each other with ideas and ways to address things that were happening in their school districts and so on. And and a little bit of financial support to help with whatever caregiving needs they have, whether it's for children or for parents, um, elderly parents and so on. And then the next thing we realized is that there was a lot of information and misinformation out there about the pandemic and everything else. So we brought in a couple of medical advisors that are still with the company today, and we gave our people the opportunity to do AMAs, ask questions about any medical things they wanted to know better about the pandemic, mask use, now vaccines. And so we have regular AMAs with our medical advisors where we answer questions from our employees and we have become a trusted source of medical information for people. And so the principle through this has been about every step of the way, staying ahead of what do people need? We have an always on kind of survey where we ask people questions like, tell us what's going on for you. What are the biggest challenges? productivity, burnout is the biggest issue, not because of the workload alone, but just the intensity of what people are dealing with. Sequestered in their home, schooling from home, trying to figure that out. We've coached um, people managers to make sure that they're sensitive to what the issues and challenges are people are facing, whether it's caregiving, mental health challenges. We brought really strong resources to support people in their mental health. And we have listening circles and therapy circles for people to just deal with whatever varied topics have come up for them during this time. And I'm proud to say we achieved record high employee engagement satisfaction during this period. And people tell me all the time, I do a weekly note to the company. And in my weekly note, I talk about what's going on in the world, what's going on around the pandemic. How do we think about it? How are we making decisions? We had to make some important decisions recently about things like vaccines. Are we going to require vaccines of people coming back to our offices? And so we talked about the fact that we're not. And here's why. And here's why we made these decisions and choices with transparency, because I think that builds a degree of trust that's really important between us and our workers, especially during this time. So it's been quite a journey. I would be lying if I said I wasn't tired. We're all tired <laughs> of living this way, dealing with this. But the, difficulty of this past year has presented us with a lot of gifts and opportunity. A coach, Kathy and I both know one of one of the expressions I took away from him is there's a gift and opportunity in every difficult, challenging situation. And so I thought, and we thought early on, what are the gifts and opportunities that this presents us both as human beings and as a company. And it was an opportunity to affirm our value set to affirm and build this positive, trusting relationship with our people. And we've been very successful. And while, Many other companies in our industry have had to delay their games or have launched their games at poor quality. We've shipped 13 games at quality, uh, record financial results and performance. And it's all as a result of a team in the company that has been just dedicated to helping us navigate through this.
0: It just sounds amazing in terms of the job you've done and the gift you've given the people in your organization in terms of being so tuned into their needs and bringing forward all these different resources to really care for them. So, it just sounds like you have done an amazing job of caring for your people. They're lucky.
1: Yeah, thanks, Kathy, but not me. I was the leader of, but we we had and still have an incredible team of people in the company for whom this has been the lion's share of their work, right? And whether it's our technology teams figuring out how to bring in um, new and interesting technologies that enable productivity and collaboration. Or our workplaces team figuring out, there have been situations where even though we've recommended everybody work from home, we have allowed people to come back in their offices because their home situation was not supportive to their mental health. Or our benefits people always looking at different ways to make sure people are having the care they need, the support they need, etc. Our security and intelligence team who has been literally tracking caseloads in every geography in which we operate so that we can understand what is actually happening with the pandemic and using actual science to make decisions about what's okay for us to allow our employees to do or not do vis-a-vis workplace so all of those things um the thing i would say as a leader is it takes a village to navigate something like something through this and we've had a fantastic team that's worked through this. My role has just been setting guidance and principle and taking on the tough questions, but as you you have to surround yourself with a super talented team and create the kind of environment where the the talent of the people comes forward to help solve these unprecedented types of situations. So, yeah,
0: it's amazing. We were talking about earlier, you know, and I know that you've participated uh, with the Institute for the Future in past conversations about the future of work. And there's all this dialogue around, you know, what is going to be, what is the workplace going to look like in the future? And I'm wondering what you think is going to stick or not stick during, you know, from this pandemic time. And as I said, you, you have, you are a highly creative workforce, you know, and what your work product is. And I think that that can also be a little bit different. Um, You know, people talk about this topic as if it's a one size fits all, you know, kind of like we're all working from home forever. And um, I just, I I struggle with that kind of forecasting. What are your thoughts? I think
1: that. As a company, when there have been very large, uh, relevant companies who have come out and said, we believe in remote work, anyone can work from home at any point in time for as long as they want. That's actually not us. And to your point about one size doesn't fit all, even within electronic arts, one size doesn't fit all. We have very diverse teams, right? We have corporate functions like my own. Uh, many of our processes and practices can be done in a distributed way with people working from home or remotely. And then we have teams that do things like motion capture. We have the most sophisticated motion capture facility in the world. And while we were able to figure out some small elements of motion capture to do from home, we have an entire sound stage that is, I don't even know how big it is, but it's big. And there are things that cannot be replaced. There are our audio engineers who work in these specialized soundboards to compose and uh, create music. And so we recognize that there are jobs that can be done easily remotely, and jobs that can't, and everything in between. So the principle for us has been the following. As a creative company, we believe in the kinetic energy is the term our CEO uses that comes from people being together, working together and collaborating on important pieces of work. Um, We believe in that. And as a result, what we have said is, we think physical presence is important. That said though, the horse is out of the barn, right? People have seen a degree of flexibility that they desire. But when we um, carefully look at what our people have asked for, and by the way, this has been a really important uh, principle through this entire process, is don't assume you know, actually ask people what they want, what they need and why. And so we have regularly pulsed our people to understand what's important to you as you think about the future of work. What, How do you work? Think about it. And here's what came back. Less than 10% of people said they want to work from home all the time. Less than 10%. But about 50% of the people we surveyed said, I'd like a little flexibility. I'd like a day or two a week at home where I don't have to do that awful commute. We, Our offices happen to be in some very uh, large metropolitan areas, high cost geographies. And folks have said things like, if I know I'm only commuting three days a week into the office, then I can work a little farther afield and maybe afford housing more. And so what we have heard from people is a desire for increased flexibility, but our demographics, our workforce skews a little bit younger, people have enjoyed being in office together. There are bonds and relationships that happen. The social capital that's built from uh, grabbing a cup of coffee together in a cafe at the site, or um, we believe in gaming. And so we have gaming consoles everywhere and ping pong tables and pool tables and ways people can, You know, sometimes work through a difficult problem by stepping out of the meeting room and just kind of playing a a game of billiards together and talking through and chatting through the the issue. And so knowing who we are as a creative company, ultimately, I think most of our people will probably work in our offices most of their time, but we're going to implement a degree of flexibility. So it's this hybrid. And we have a principle in this uh, cross-functional team that we're working on. We call it Ace the Hybrid, Meaning all of our effort is actually going to be focused on how we evolve our work practices and culture to ace the hybrid, meaning one of the underlying principles is we want people to have an equivalent experience, regardless of whether they're working at home or working in the office or a hybrid person. And so how they still feel a sense of belonging to electronic cards. Um, identify with their team's culture, or their studio's culture. As a creative company, we have a lot of independent studios, and they all have a unique culture. And that unique culture and identity gets them to magic in their games, right? Deeply passionate for their space, their game, their genre. And so recreating those things when you have the team that's more distributed is going to be a really interesting challenge. We also, again, back to the, the principle of one size doesn't fit all, some of our teams do quote unquote back office work. They can work in a distributed way and that's fine. Other teams, what they realize about their work process is there are particular moments in time in the life cycle of the development of a game where you want the team together collaborating. And then there are times where independent work is actually fine and can be done from home. And so, for example, when a team in sort of pre-production where the team's trying to figure out what it is they're building, what type of game What are the features? What is the zeitgeist story narrative? There's a lot of value to be. That's the most intense part of the creative process. And so there's a lot of value to people being together to work through that. But then when they're in production and coding the game or building the art and so on, being a little bit more distributed is fine. And so what we're doing is we're empowering our leaders to find the model that works for them and that will work for their team. And what we've said to the company, is, this is the grand experiment. We're gonna be in experimentation and learning mode for a while, at least a year or so, as we try these different things out. Even though we've been in the pandemic situation for a year, um, we still haven't fulfilled an entire product life cycle in this time. I mean, building games, most games take multi the multi-year efforts. So we don't actually know. And so to be declarative today, about what a future work model looks like for electronic arts is very premature and unwise in my mind. I think my personal perspective is we we need to try things. We reserve the right to learn and get smarter. Some things are going to work. Some things are not going to work. But it is a journey we walk as a company with our people and keeping an open line of communication as we go through this. So that's, that's in principle how I think about it. And I do think I do think for some, of the, I could be wrong, but I do predict that some of these companies that have been very declarative about widely remote and distributed work may end up changing their mind later on down the road. Recognizing that the social capital and the this kinetic energy that happens from in-person collaboration is actually really beneficial.
0: Yeah, I concur. And I'm also hearing this just from individuals as well. And while they have appreciated maybe not having a commute or uh, having a little bit more flexibility, I know more extroverted folks are really struggling during this time and really want to get back to being around people. So I think there's a lot more to really kind of think through here. Yeah. I also wanted to ask you about diversity, equity and inclusion since it's been such a big topic in the last year. And now, of course, and will continue to be. And as we've talked about, you've not only are managing this global organization, but also have worked in a lot of different cultures. And I wonder if you have thoughts on just the importance. I think of it, yes, there's import, the the role of the company and what you need to be doing. But I also think there's a responsibility for all of us as professionals to think about this and to, to think about how do we embrace diversity. And I wonder if it needs to become something that people really think about in terms of building a sustainable career. So I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about Just your thoughts on the importance of people thinking about diversity, equity, and inclusion
1: today in their careers. Uh, For sure. I think that um, if this past year has taught us anything, it is around the importance of allyship. And some of the injustices that have existed in the world today um, have manifested over centuries. And uh, one of the things I always say to the team is, it is not fair or appropriate to ask the underrepresented groups to be the ones to create the change. It has to be the people in the majority. And so, the way I kind of think about the importance of understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion in our careers is every single one of us, regardless of whether we're in a leadership role or not, has a responsibility to be allies for others. And whether you identify in an underrepresented community or you identify in the majority for whatever that is in your country and the world, you have a responsibility to uplift and support others who may not um, have the same level of equity as you've had over your life and career. And this becomes extremely important when you're in a leadership role. And so for many of us, as we get to this stage in our career, many of us have often playing leadership roles, whether we're formerly managers of others or leaders of organizations and teams, or whether we just lead pieces of work. And the simple premise of why would we leave anybody's potential and capability out on the table and not in the work, right? Is, is it, we always talk about this notion of building a business case for diversity. We have a very strong one as a company because we build games for a very diverse world. Two and a half billion people, they cut across every incre- imaginable demographic you could think of. And so there's a clear cut case for why having more diverse teams um, to build more stories and identities and characters that are authentic uh, is important and, and is good for business. But then there's also the moral case, right? And we've seen so many examples in the world as recently as this past week and all of the uh, violence and hate directed to the Asian American community here in the United States and elsewhere around the world. Every week, sadly, every month, sadly, there are more and more examples of injustices, inequity, bias, racism, xenophobia in our societies. And so, there is a moral basis and a role we play as companies and as leaders and as individuals to help change that. And so I think when I think about career and sustainable ambition, we all have elements of diversity, every single one of us, whether it's Mm -hmm. race or ethnicity or gender or some of the other sort of nuanced things. Like part of what I've learned about diversity around the world is it's not my job or the company's job to prescribe what diversity means in these societies. But the question I ask is, who is underrepresented in your society? And how do we make our place, our workplace, the the type of place where they feel like they can belong and are welcomed? And so what is, what is that defined as in Korea or in China? And I think as an organization, as leaders, as people, it is all about why wouldn't we want everybody to achieve their potential? Why wouldn't we want everybody to bring their capabilities? And so building a career, whether none of us do jobs that are just based on our own talents and capabilities, right? The type of work most people who are listening to this podcast do, I would argue probably requires a lot of collaboration with others, right? To get things done and to achieve results. And so if you're going to collaborate with others, part of having a sustainable uh, ambition for your career is knowing how to do that well. And leaving people's core identity aside and understand not understanding who they are and what's brought them to this place and how they think about the world and their work that's just not good business it doesn't get you the results and so that's how i see the value of all of us embracing these notions and deeply reflecting ourselves we're all product of our experiences right so it's deeply reflecting reflecting ourselves how we show up in the world around these things and what we want to change Today, you know, there's no excuse for not understanding these topics. There's more than enough smart reading podcasts, amazing documentaries. I mean, I, the thing I say to people all the time is educate yourself because there's a, we have a wealth of knowledge available to us around the history of injustices, around the things that exist in our society today, the why, and just step into that, learn, it will make you a better person, a better leader. It will help you in your career for sure.
0: Yeah, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, Really, really helpful. Uh, A final area I wanted to just talk to you about before I let you go is around one of the pillars that I talk about with uh, sustainable ambition is right effort, which I say is about directing your energy so your work doesn't unintentionally take over your life. And I wonder if you have any tips for managing it all, if you will, (laughs) and having a full, ambitious personal and professional life. Like, what have you learned works for you to manage work and life a little more sustainably?
1: Yeah. So a couple of things. I did talk about choosing well in your partner. If you you, you choose to have a life partner, choose well so that you both have that contract with each other about how you're going to support each other for whatever your aspirations are. Um, so that's, that's number one. Um, the second thing is I do think you have to set some boundaries, right? And so be really clear. So one of the things I try not to do is I'll look at email after eight o'clock at night and I do my very best not to pay attention to what's going on over the weekend because it is easy to make, especially with the advent of smartphones and to have access to that 24 seven. I think, um, setting boundaries for yourself, I think are really important. The third piece is this notion of recharge, right? One of the things I realized, especially this last year, is the things I normally would do to recharge weren't available to me. And so I had to find different ways to recharge. My normal thing is I like to go to the spa. I like to dine out with friends. I like lots of those kinds of things. Um, Exploration and travel, that's a big one. I'm usually happiest when I'm on a trip or planning a trip (laughs) and none of those were available. And so I had to find different ways to recharge, like going deep on all the 80s uh, John Hughes movies with my kids and some of them highly inappropriate. Let me just put that warning out there. But (laughs) being able to sort of watch some of the movies that were really fun for me in my early years and now exposing my kids to that and having great conversations about how misogynistic some of that stuff is <laughs> and enjoying those really rich conversations with my kids has been really fun. Um, learning how to cook some traditional dishes for my culture that I would never normally have the time to do and picking a new dish every weekend and trying it. So that has been fun. So I think, um, being really clear about what it takes to recharge and finding ways to do that and setting boundaries. And by the way, it is okay for all of us to talk about these boundaries with our employers. I think there's this general fear that you can't sort of lay it out or be seen as not ambitious enough or so on. And then what I would say is, and this might sound idealistic, but if you're not able to set if you're a high performing person and you're not able to set boundaries that are respected by your leadership, then maybe you're not at the right place. Right, I think it's really important for us. I feel like I'm a high performer. I take a lot of pride in my work. I take a lot of pride in having impact. And as a result, when I say, "Hey, I need to be out of email and anything this weekend. I need to just take a breather," there's no question to that. And my, I've chosen a role that demands a lot of me. I have a, I feel responsible for the 14,000 people who work in our company and their safety and, and well-being, especially this past year but I also need time to recharge or I can't be the best leader that I can. And people respect that. And so the authenticity, honesty, openness, and transparency, I think is really important. And if you don't get that support back, then you're maybe not in the right place.
0: Yeah, I love all of that advice. Thank you. Mala, I'd love to keep talking with you, but we're about out of time. So I'd love to just ask you one final question, which is, Just what's a final piece of advice you leave our listeners
1: with? I think if there's a theme for everything that I've talked about is it's okay to have a vision for your life and your career. It's okay to have your own vision and then screen every decision you make through that. Is this going to get me closer to my vision or pull me farther away from my vision? And it's okay if you don't know what that is today, but I would really encourage you to take all of this data, this sequestered time we've had, and we still will have hopefully for a few months to come, uh, to really figure that out for yourself. Because having that North Star, pick your analogy, North Star, Guiding Light, whatever you call it, um, for yourself and being really clear about that enables you to then make good decisions. So I'd leave you with that. Wonderful.
0: Mala, thank you again for spending time with me. I really appreciate it and love all of what you shared today. So wonderful having you on the show.
1: Thanks so much, Kathy. This was really fun talking with you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice-monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.